Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Isildin Abdulaziz Bukhari. Isildin is a self-taught chef and founder of Sacred Cuisine. Sacred Cuisine is a culmination of Isildin's life experiences that are deeply embedded in his Sufi roots. Sacred Cuisine embodies everything he values and aspires to instill. Originating from Bukhara, modern-day Uzbekistan, his family migrated to the old city of Jerusalem in 1616 to teach Sufism. As a young adult, Isildin moved to the United States and discovered his passion for cooking when missing Palestinian cuisine. So he experimented with recreating his favorite Palestinian dishes. It was then that he discovered cooking as a form of meditation for which he could lose himself and connect to the world around him. This was a transformative experience which allowed him to mindfully contemplate the world around him and inspiring his vision for sacred cuisine. He began then to notice where his ingredients came from, how they were grown, and what impact the dual process of their production and consumption had on the ecosystem. So upon returning to Palestine and Jerusalem, he decided to take Palestinian food, which is traditionally mostly plant-based, back to its roots of simplicity, versatility, and inclusiveness. Before we delve into all of this, first thing first, Isildin, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roberto. I look, I'm very happy to be on your uh, podcast and very happy to share with you and your audience uh, my mind and thoughts from Jerusalem Old City. I'm very excited about it, particularly whenever we talk about food, I guess that's my Italian soul coming out. So first of all, I want to ask you if you can tell us something about yourself and also about your relationship with Jerusalem. Uh, so I'm Ezzedine Bukhari, born and raised in the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, actually, my family uh, immigrated from Bukhara in 1616, and we've been in the same house, uh, same Sufi center since 1636. Uh, uh, and uh, all my family, uh, for most of them, grew up in this house, my grandfathers uh, and my father as well. I grew up in this house, which have a lot of history. But also it is part of the old city of Jerusalem where things can go uh, very far in time, you know. So things like 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, this is like the norm of the old city of Jerusalem. Uh, so uh, that's... Uh, and uh, also I lived in the United States for seven years. Uh, and now I'm back in Jerusalem 
And uh, yeah, I'm here. That's fascinating, particularly the idea that you can trace back so long back in time and, uh, you know, keep living in the old city, despite all what happened to Jerusalem in the past uh, few hundred years. So I'm curious about something. Your family, yeah. as you mentioned, traces back its origins in Bukhara, which is in modern day in Uzbekistan, just Perfect. to place it on a map. Uh, and a place that I had the pleasure to visit uh, yeah, almost a decade ago, and it's absolutely an amazing place. Correct. True. Bukhara was an important center on the Silk Road and a place where people met of different ethnicities, religions, you know, like you are obviously talking about Sufi culture from Bukhara. It's also true that there was a very important Jewish community, which is also represented in Jerusalem with a, with a synagogue and, I, I guess, an old community that keeps uh, the roots alive. Now, mm -hmm. your family, as you said, migrated to Jerusalem in order to teach Sufism. I guess Correct. a lot of people may know about Sufism and Sufi, but I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, Sufism and also what Sufism means to you. Uh, yeah, sure. So Sufism, if we want to summary uh, the description of Sufism, it's like uh, the mysticism part of Islam. Uh, it is coming from the Islamic religion. Uh, it is part of the Islamic Sunni. Uh, there is also Sufi who are Shia, but uh, uh, for Sufism, it's also coming from the Sunni, like my family. And it focuses on using the tool of meditation to kind of cope with the stress of life. And it has the philosophy that you worship or you give thanks to the creator, to the universe by... Uh, you know, in Sufism, they say, if you really want to know the creation and God, you look to the uh, to the creation itself. You see how things are weaved and created very beautifully and perfectly. Uh, so Sufism is about appreciating all these elements of how the earth rotate, how the birds have uh, different colors, how the diversity in, uh, in the creation. So Sufism is uh, giving thanks uh, to... Uh, to the creator and focusing on this element uh, and it is not to worship out of fear it is to worship out of love uh, so this is like the fundamental part of Sufism and uh, in, in Sufism what does it mean to me uh, Sufism is uh, something that I'm still discovering even though I come from uh, a family where we are Sufi for 100 years uh, at least and uh, Sufism, uh, it's a big culture, and there is so much of different order, for example. So my family, we come from the Naqshbandi, uh, but the most famous Sufi uh, is by uh, Al-Mawlawi order, Jalaluddin Rumi. Uh, but there is many other orders, and each order, they have their own way how they do the meditation. They have uh, a little bit of their own culture about uh, which song they, they sing, uh, which instrument you use. Uh, and such. So Sufism for me is something that I'm still discovering and I'm still uh, learning and there is so much into it. But uh, what I focus on Sufism is the essence of Sufism because unfortunately uh, many, uh, many religious leaders, uh, they use the teaching to basically navigate people to certain way of thinking. So uh, many uh, religious leaders take advantage uh, from teach us. And what I see, they always teach us what we have to say and what we have to do, but no, they don't teach us the essence. While in Sufism, it is based on essence. And that's what more interesting for me. So for example, Jalaluddin Rumi, uh, the poet, uh, the one who created the whirling, the dancing, in one of his book, he was talking about very important, at least for me, uh, but also in Sufism, aspect of your connection and relation with Sufism. And he was elaborating and saying that when they started the Sufism in their era, uh, it was a philosophy based on worship out of love. And the different scholars of Sufism, they took their own way of walking this journey and interacting with it. And through their personal journey, 
uh, order was created. So Jalaluddin Rumi, for example, he's the one who created the whirling. He's the one who created the whole uh, culture of Maulawi order and how it operates today. It was a self-understanding uh, self, uh, uh, towards Sufism and what does it mean to him. Uh, so uh, he, he talked about this point that's most important in Sufism, even if you are following uh, a teacher for Sufi, even uh, if you are following a certain uh, sheikh, it is very important all, also to find your connection between you and the creator and to have that direct connection, you know. Uh, so you can also thrive in your own way and in your understanding and uh, how you do meditation, for example, or how you connect to Sufism. And I think this is very crucial, especially in our time right now, where uh, fast forward, you know, uh, about uh, when Sufism was uh, very popular and when Jalaluddin Rumi was living to uh, now a time, uh, things, a lot of things change in life. Uh, so understanding the essence, it's allow me to reconnect with Sufism in my own understanding, in my own way, in a way that I can take it on every day-to-day -day life. And we will talk later about uh, the essence and Sufism related to food. But I wanted to ask you something in relation to Sufism in general, particularly looking at Jerusalem and Palestine. And I was wondering, what, what is your sense of the status of Sufism? It, it's still uh, practiced throughout Jerusalem and Palestine. Is this is still part of Palestinian culture? Or you see Sufism at the margins? Unfortunately, Sufism is dying from the Arab world. Uh, Sufism, due to politic, uh, it was attacked, it was uh, targeted. Uh, some people claim Sufism is not the true way of being a Muslim, and uh, they uh, criminalize every aspect of it. Uh, they said that the whirling is dancing, the music is singing, and uh, they basically uh, demonize it uh, in a way to kind of be like Sufism is not true. Uh, a practice of being Muslim. So uh, this is, uh, of course, uh, have to do a lot with the politic and the politic kind of were focusing very much to take Sufism from being the anchor of Islam. Because if we go back in time, uh, during the Ottoman Empire time, let's say, uh, it was the last leadership of the Muslims, uh, Sufism was the main anchor. Uh, it was the focus of the, uh, of the Muslims. So, for example, in the old city of Jerusalem, we used to have 70 Sufi center. In the old city is very small place. So to have a 70 Sufi center, it can just give you the idea how much uh, of uh, heritage and culture of Sufism was existed and uh, how it is, uh, it was a thriving and a growing culture. And today, uh, unfortunately, we have, uh, what can I say, two and a half Sufi centers that you can still see, and they still kind of existed. One is our neighbors, uh, the Afghani, which is they still do the practice, and they are the only Sufi center in the old city of Jerusalem where they still do the practice and meditation on a weekly basis. Uh, then our Sufi center, we lost 90% of our property due to corruption and due to gangsters. And what also left is the Indian hospice, uh, the Indian Sufi center, where it is remain as it is as a place, but you don't do any practice, but you still can see the culture, the history, the picture, some of the text uh, as uh, and such. Uh, so this is show you how, what Sufism used to be and what Sufism is today. We just ran a short series here at Jerusalem Unplugged on the Navy Musa Festival. Uh, with Awad Labi and myself, and uh, one of the most important uh, celebration of the Navy Musa Festival was actually, you know, the presence and the rituals that were performed by Sufi uh, in the Ottoman era, but even at the very uh, earliest stages of the British mandate. But unfortunately, all of that is gone, as you mentioned, mostly for political reasons. Let yes. me move to uh, 2017. Uh, and later we will talk about your experience in America, but in 2017, you opened your sacred cuisine. And the idea was to revive Palestinian Somi food. So first of all, 
Can you speak about this idea of reviving this particularly uh, particular Palestinian food and what Somi means? And you got the question. So basically, Somi food is a food that we refer uh, when the food is suitable for the Lent, for the Christian fasting. So uh, in Christianity, uh, uh, the fasting they do, they give up on a certain item for 40 days. It's different from uh, different type of Christians, but mainly for the people who are in the Middle East, for most of them, not everyone, for most of them, they become vegan for this 40 days. So in this 40 days, they won't eat meat or the product of meat. And uh, this practice, it's, uh, it brought so many dishes to our table. And uh, most important uh, and the best example of how this uh, practice influences our table is by the falafel. So the falafel that everybody knows uh, worldwide, uh, but not a lot of people know the story. But the story, it comes from the Coptic of Egypt. Coptic are Christian of Egypt. They wanted to create during the Lent a food that can be full of protein and they can replicate it fast and also it's delicious and this is from there they came up with this idea of falafel but they make the falafel from fava bean not from a chickpea we kind of people in the middle east we took it and we substituted for chickpeas it became more famous as a version but the original of falafel start with with fava bean so the cooktake they wanted to create that recipe for that purpose so this is what is somi food and uh, also, uh, what something very interesting and fascinating for me as a chef and a food historian and uh, a person who loves food is there is a mechanism that they created with this practice. And this mechanism is basically veganize the dishes for that period of fasting. So most famous uh, example of this is we have the grape leaves. I'm sure you tasted the grape leaves before, at least you know about it. It's a grape leaves that we roll with rice and ground beef or with rice and chickpeas. And when it is the fasting period, this is where they substitute the meat with the chickpeas. And they will call it Wara Dawali Siami, which basically means grape leaves Siami, to emphasize and to let people know this food is safe or suitable to eat for Lent. Now, this culture is very rich. And there is so many stories and so many dishes came to life because of this practice, such as fatou salad, which also have a story of interaction between Muslim and Christian over fasting, and baba ghanouj even, and uh, other dishes. But uh, what I realize that this culture is dying. And we as a Palestinian forgetting about it. And even though the falafel still exists, people don't know the story. And even the grape leaves saw me it exists. They don't make the connection. Uh, so I decided, uh, and especially uh, in, in our world today, everybody is excited about vegan and vegetarian. And everybody is playing in that trend as if it is something new, something a human discovered recently. So what I'm trying to show is through highlighting somi food, like this idea is way much older than what we think today. And uh, our culture, we had this vegan aspect uh, or at least the vegetarian aspect of fasting. And I think it is very a beautiful practice because not a lot of people are vegan and not a lot of people are vegetarian, but uh, there is no in-between. It can be like people eat meat or people don't, they are vegetarian and vegan. And it is like there is no in-between. And what I like about the Somi practice, it is like, hey, do whatever you want, but at least at certain time, reflect in your body and they tune in and cleanse it in a way. And I think this practice is very beautiful because it allows people to participate in it no matter what their diet restriction or their diet idea is. And I think this is will allow people to eat more vegetarian and to kind of enjoy that they can sustain themselves uh, through the vegetarian and vegan food. So I decided to build a company focusing on somi food, highlighting the story of somi food, and even though I still eat meat, I decided my company not to cook any meat to kind of emphasize and highlight this concept. And that's why Sacred Cuisine was created, even from the name, 
uh, I want to this uh, to practice this. Uh, uh, I want to highlight this in practice, the somi practice. But also, I wanted to kind of collect different aspect of my uh, interest and my who I am, my roots, and put it into the product I want to create. Uh, as far as the initiative, my company. So my Sufi roots, I wanted also to include the spirituality and food and talk about it. Uh, and in this way, I had the idea of, of calling it sacred cuisine because I really want to highlight spirituality and healthy food as well culture and the stories of food. And that's how sacred cuisine came to life and to be an idea. So I want to take a step back and actually try to understand how did you become a chef? What were the ways in which you start relating yourself to food and making food then a profession? Or, as I understand, a sort of a calling? So, to be honest with you, falafel and hummus, they were the kick uh, of my career to become a chef. Uh, and the reason is because I went to live in the United States of America. And uh, after I moved there, I... Uh, in a very short period, I discovered that uh, I'm addicted to hummus and falafel, which is, I didn't know. And uh, I was like, oh, I cannot like survive without hummus and falafel. I want some hummus and falafel. So uh, I was in Arizona at the time, and I would look for places who serve hummus and falafel. And I would go try them, and I was like, for the first time, realizing how our food uh, or hummus and falafel can be executed uh, very badly. So out of frustration, out of going to different places and trying to eat just okay hummus and falafel, and I came short in my results, I, I, I was like, okay, I will try to make it myself and like see what can I do. Like, is it that crazy difficult? And before that, I was like not really into cooking. Maybe I fried eggs. Maybe I did like a simple thing, but I was not even interested in cooking or, or like I will eat, but that's about it. And uh, when I start to make my own hummus and falafel, uh, I just start to uh, find the process of cooking is very meditative practice and very uh, interesting how I behave in this uh, energy when I'm cooking. I found myself that I'm disconnecting from the word, um, uh, sinking in to cooking. Uh, at that time, I was like a person who is very hyper and very active, and I want things to kind of simulate me. And uh, uh, and patience was not on my agenda. I hate just to wait or be patient. You know, it didn't make sense to me. Uh, I was like in my 23s, you know, full of energy. And then I realized, wow, like when I'm cooking, I'm focusing on uh, patience is becoming something uh, very easy for, uh, for me. And uh, just like this meditative, energy and the way of being when I'm cooking, I realized how it is very therapeutic and very something that's really uh, my soul and my mind and my body, I become just like into it. So from there, I was very interested to see uh, the cooking and what does it to me, uh, what does it uh, to me. And uh, I found that is the most meditative practice that I can do where I really feel like I'm uh, connected to higher source and this is about the creativity it's about the taste and at the end you have something to eat so uh i became cooking more and more and discovering new dishes and cooking new dishes and uh when i start to make my pita bread the hobbies you know to eat the hummus and the falafel <laughs> i i completely fall in love with cooking and i was like i want to focus on that and see where i can take it your time in america essentially helped you to discover that in your heart, you were a chef in the making. But I want to bring you back to the old mm. city of Jerusalem because the old city of Jerusalem offers really an almost global culinary tour with foods coming from all around the world. And, you know, going across the various religious traditions, you can find food from Europe, Africa, the Middle East. And, and I was wondering, uh, you know, to what extent, uh, the old city of Jerusalem and its food, uh, other than hummus and pita and falafel, influence your cooking. And also, if you can share with us uh, the places and foods that influence your work and your taste. So, 
Uh, being in, living in the old city and having visitors who come from all over the world, uh, some uh, visitors who used to come visit my dad. My dad was very active in the community, uh, in the international community also. Uh, so we had many visitors, and I always found myself as a tour guide since I'm a little boy. And uh, also growing up with this and uh, becoming a chef, and uh, I, I really uh, start to see that how many people come to the old city of Jerusalem, get to experience the old city of Jerusalem, but for most of the time, they are experiencing it with a person through his lens or through his point of view, and this person not even from the whole country at all. And I start to see how many people come over here, go with very little taste of what it really is the old city as far as culinary, as far as history, as far as culture. And I was like, wow, this is very sad for all these tourists to come over here and to come from sometimes the other part of the universe, uh, the world, I mean. And they come over here and they get to experience the touristy aspect and the commercial aspect and very little of the real aspect. Uh, so when I start to do food tour, I decided that I want to expose uh the the visitors or the participants through uh different kind of things which they won't have the opportunity to if they are not with me uh so for example everybody know hummus and everybody know falafel but not a lot of people know about qutsiye or sabaha or fatte which is another hummus dishes you can get at the hummus place and a lot of people know the falafel but not a lot of people know the stuffed falafel for example you know so uh, either from my hummus selection of uh, different dishes uh, to other places, I want to highlight these gems that's kind of somehow end up uh, and known for the local and not everybody from who come to visit get to experience. So people will go eat the hummus, but maybe they will not try the other dishes. So when I do my food tour, for example, one of the stops is the hummus where we go and we try all the hummuses can create in this shop and uh, this way uh, people like uh, be like oh I know hummus and I know falafel but I didn't know about stuffed falafel or sabaha or such so that's my mechanism that's what uh, I built my work on even my cooking even my menu is like how can I expose people to things beyond makluba and shawarma and all the standard things that people know absolutely uh, and I was just thinking when you're talking about uh my own experience as uh, not a Jerusalemite. I never claimed to be one. I lived there, so I, you know, sort of learned my way around. I experienced new food, which I didn't know before. And uh, the influence also my understanding of uh, Palestinian culture. And I got more and more curious about the origins of certain dishes. And for instance, in, um, in a couple of episodes, I delved into the question of... Uh, uh, you know, the origins of, of, of certain dishes and how they traveled throughout the region and ended up being a, a, a Palestinian staple. Um, I, I was thinking about the knafe, for instance, you know, its origins in Nablus, but also the uh, various uh, Jerusalemite version. And in, in each recipe, it's, a, it's a, has a, its own history, and uh, th that history is a reflection of local cultures. And this is very important. And a lot of people, as you mentioned, uh, often visit Jerusalem, but they leave Jerusalem without having experienced any uh, of these. And in fact, like yourself, you're, you know, you're taking people on tours and I'm thinking about uh, Crystal uh, with uh, her, her own tours. Um, and she was a previous guest of, um, of a podcast talking about Palestinian stories. And so, you know, these are very important uh, aspects because, as you mentioned, many, many people visit, but they only have this very superficial experience of Jerusalem as a city, its food, its history, and its people. And one of the reasons why actually this podcast uh, was born was exactly that. Try to give people that may not be able to visit, but a sense of uh, what's more. And... Uh, I have a question and might be a little bit uh, provocative. You mentioned earlier that uh, Sacred Cuisine focuses very much on vegetarian and vegan food. And I was wondering how hard is to remove meat from a culture that has made meat very central in its food and recipes? 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. You know, this is the problem. Uh, it's like our food is so much vegetarian and vegan and eaten meat. Nobody all over the world could afford to eat meat like what we are doing today. So meat was like the center of the table because it was a feast. When there was a feast happening, there was an occasion happening. There is something happening in the community. Uh, someone getting married, uh, certain uh, very exciting uh, thing happening in the community. And this is where people eat meat. So uh, if you come to these feasts, if you come even to the stuffed lamb, and uh, uh, in these things took a place because it was not everyday life. It was something that's happened once you know, every month or so, and people will gather and eat that feast. And, you know, just to just even like to elaborate on this idea of a stuffed lamb. A stuffed lamb will just show you how even if they want to eat meat, they want to stretch it out by stuffing it with rice and taking that flavor of meat and infuse it with the rice. But in the same time, uh, you know, making this dish of a stuffed lamb much more so it can feed the masses, you know. So, for example, you can grill uh, a lamb, you know, a whole lamb. But when you stuff it, there is more food. But what they stuffed it with, they stuffed it with rice to kind of stretch uh, that meal for many uh, 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 mouses to feed. And uh, this whole idea of we are eating meat that much, it came from our parents uh, or our grandfather where they felt like, oh, I, I was eating meat once every month or every week. And now I have the opportunity to buy it for my kids every day. They felt they are doing better and they're providing better for their family. So all of a sudden, people start to, meet, to eat meat every day and uh, they're excited about it. So they cook it on, on many different dishes. And now they are like, or you know Middle Eastern food in general they're like no it's very meat heavily but that's why when I step into food history and when I look into food history and I trace down these dishes I found a lot of vegan dishes and a lot of vegetarian dishes that are very well executed and when you eat them you even forget that there is no meat or you feel you don't even have meat and that's, uh, you don't even need to eat meat. And, you know, today on my food tour, I just finished a food tour today a few hours ago. And the participants on uh, on the food tour, they were saying, like, you know, we eat meat, 
But with you two, we were like so stuffed and I didn't even like realize like there was no meat in the tour because we ate many delicious stuff which is satisfy us. Uh, and uh, I think that's uh, that's what I'm trying to encounter, the perception and what we think right now our food is uh, and bring back the roots and show how much uh, vegetarian and vegan dishes we used to have. And the same is very true also for Italian cuisine. Uh, you know, if I look back at uh, my parents and my grandparents, certainly they had the same values. Like they were coming from, particularly after World War II, from a very poor cuisine where nothing was uh, available. And then Italian cuisine became very heavily meated oriented. But when you look back and you start looking at, you know, basic and essential dishes, meat was never at the center unless it was the Sunday lunch, which was, you know, sort of a traditional meal after, you know, people going to a mass or after following a religious service. But other than that, most of the week was essentially based on carbohydrates or pasta-based and vegetables. And there's a, a trend now to recover that because obviously this idea of uh, uh, meat consumption has been very much sort of uh, based on this post-war era idea of wealth and rebirth but it was not necessarily part of uh, Italian cuisine before, probably for the rich, for the nobles, but not certainly for the people in general. Yes, and actually, uh, uh, I found, I forget the name of the disease in English, but uh, in Arabic, it's called the disease of king, of kings. And this disease, uh, it's basically when a person eats a lot of meat, their knuckles and their joints I don't know how to explain it, but they become, uh, they change in form and uh, they will have, they will take a weird shape. And this is because of uh, uh, the, uh, the consumption of meat. And this disease was very popular between the kings because uh, at that time they're like, oh, you are the king, you eat meat every day, you know. And he was like, and they will eat a lot of meat and they will end up with this disease. And uh, they call it the disease of kings. Uh, I will look it up and send it to you so I can include it in the description if you like. Uh, what's the name of the disease uh, in, in, in English or in Latin? Uh, but uh, yeah, this is just to kind of give you an, uh, to give an idea uh, for uh, you and the audience and everyone like how uh, the association was to eat meat is was not for everyone, uh, every person. Normal. I believe the name is gout. Um, at, at least I know in Italian it's called gotta. So I think in in English should be gout. But it's definitely very popular. There were kings who died of that, as we were trying to show that uh, they were able to eat so much meat, and obviously they were very rich and wealthy, without thinking that actually there was not really healthy at all. Yeah. I, yeah, I exactly. want to ask you something about yes. uh, your food tours, because obviously sacred cuisine is about food, but it's also about tours. And so I was wondering if you can speak about uh, the tours, how they are organized, and uh, what kind of experience people uh, may live throughout the tour. So the tour, uh, it's designed uh to uh, you know as i said to expose people to things that they might not eat when they are in palestine uh, uh or they are like visiting because they will go to more commercial stuff so it's really based the item everything i choose is something that's uh, for most of the time it will be new for the participants this is number one number two is to give them opportunity to walk into my footsteps and where do i shop where do i eat where do I go to source my in ingredients, you know? So this is, so it's really beneficial for people who come to visit, but also more for the people who is living over here from the expats community who work in NGO, diplomat mission and such. They live over here. And basically for this one year, two years, three years, they are living, they are like local because they go, they need to buy things, they need to cook, they need to live their life. So I help them to kind of like find the best spots where they can treat them nicely, not as a tourist and take uh, jack them with the prices, uh, put them in the hands of people who are trustable and they care about their passion uh, and uh, allow them uh, to, to know these uh, resources so they can utilize it. 
So either from uh, the hummus places uh, to the tahini place where they make the tahini, to the farmers, what they have with them and how they can utilize it, and uh, many of these greens which can be foreigner to others. Uh, so I uh, I focus on that to f so for the three hours of a journey, which is my food take for the participants, is to kind of include the spices, the tahini, the grains, uh, the farmers market, the places where they provide some of the best things to eat in the old city of Jerusalem. So uh, it's really uh, designed in that way. I'll book a spot for my next trip to Jerusalem, inshallah, very soon. Let me ask something. Yeah. You have been very successful. You've been featured in a number of media. You work with very famous chefs. And I was wondering, did all of this attention change your cooking and your philosophy of cooking? Uh, I would say, yeah. <clears throat> I didn't, to be honest with you, when I start sacred cuisine and when I start to cook food, uh, I thought like, okay, in food, what you do, you cook food and you sell it. So this is, was like the main thing. Uh, and as I start to operate, I found and improvised to kind of fill needs in the community for the participants. Uh, and this uh, food experiences uh, came to my mind to see there is uh, what is missing in the market and how I can elaborate on the Palestinian uh, cuisine, culture, uh, through food. So uh, basically, uh, improvising and uh, going with the flow helped me to kind of navigate in a better way. And I start to see myself always in a role that I elaborate about food culture and food history. So I start to see the value of... Uh, the culture itself, you know, uh, talking about it beyond the food. Uh, so it pushed me, uh, like I never thought even about food historian, you know, I didn't think of, of this title, you know, or, or, or this being, you know, to focus on your work uh, as a food history. So uh, when I discovered the story of falafel, I was very happy. Uh, so if I want to go back a little bit, I went around to ask people, what's the story of falafel? I was like, as an idea, it came out from very thoughtful recipe. What's the purpose behind it? And when I didn't find people giving me answers, I continued in the search till I found the story. And when I found the story, I was very happy. In the same time, I was very devastated. I was very happy that I know the story of falafel and I can share it with the world. But I was very devastated to see how much we as a Palestinian or Middle Eastern or Arab, that's we don't know the story of an item that's almost we eat every day. This is, didn't make sense to me. And I was like, if I want to talk about my food, I should at least know its history and uh, dive into it. And uh, this is what kind of like it was a breaking point in my career to kind of be like, I want to learn my career and I want to study it and I want to take it every part of it from ingredient to dishes, to tools, to agriculture, to everything have to do with food and, and know it. And this has became a duty that I took on myself with very high interest. I didn't do it because I don't have an interest. I did it because I was very interested and curious about this food history. And every time you find the story about certain dish, it just makes the dish even taste better. And just like, it's very exciting. So uh, I would say I found in myself to be uh, working with uh, high-profile uh, people or high-profile chefs, uh, celebrity chefs, uh, people who are doing amazing work and have a very vast uh, reach. And when I'm, I'm doing the work with them, I also will ride on that wave, you know, and I start to see how it is big responsibility that I have to carry on. So it kind of shaped me to kind of have a real value in the work I do and to include the academic part of it and the, to take it as if I'm studying in the university. And that's what exactly I took on myself because of all this interaction, because of uh, all these media and such. But also I would say like this has started to happen more and more when people start to hear about me and uh, to see my work. 
uh, they are like, okay, this guy have the story of falafel. He talk about the history of food. He talk about vegetarian food. So I feel all these elements help to kind of take my name and spread it around. And um, many media outlet, uh, many chefs, uh, they they wanted to come and know about the Palestinian food. Uh, food uh, but I never expect <laughs> to be uh, expert on Palestinian food. And I would say, you know, and I always say to people, I'm like, I'm on the beginning of the journey. There is so much still I didn't know, but I'm discovering it and I'm sharing it with you. But yeah, I would say it gave me a big uh, responsibility and es an essence of uh, focusing on my work and uh, uh, putting this, uh, increase the value of my work because of this responsibility. I have a couple of more questions and one of them is really about what you were talking about, the question of uh, Palestinian food. So in the context of uh, current Israeli politics, what we can see is an attempt to essentially erase Palestinian culture. Now, paradoxically, when we talk about food, more than erasure, we can see appropriation. So what is traditionally yep. Palestinian then becomes somehow Israeli. And I don't want to take away anything from, for instance, the tradition of Arab Jews that brought Arab food, which is very similar in many ways to Palestinian food. But obviously, we're talking about something different here. And uh, you're trying to do the opposite, which is to show Palestinian food in light of Palestinian culture and sort of preserving Palestinian identity through food. So I was wondering, yes. how is it going so far? And how do you see the near future of this, um, shall we say, fight? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, a lot of people ask me this question, to be honest, and I always find myself, uh, especially when media uh, and big media outlet, they're always looking for that catchy aspect, you know. And they always tell people, like, I didn't in my career, all I wanted is to cook food and elaborate about food. So I'm not trying to encounter a politic or I'm not trying to encounter the appropriation of uh, uh, of uh, the, the food and such. But I always find myself in that spot. It's because when you dig into history and we talk about history, you're talking about facts. And uh, I see, you know, this is, can be a very good way to reply, to reply to certain claims. So, for example, Palestinian and Israeli fighting over falafel, say the falafel is ours and this. For me, when I tell the story of falafel, I overhear uh, kind of settled the argument, you know, without even going to the argument, because I'm not interested to go to a person who is lying or a thief and try to tell them what you're doing is wrong. They chose their path in life and it's just focusing on these elements. For me, I want to focus on my work. But when I do, it's you are bringing the true history of certain food. So, for example, makluba. Makluba is a very Palestinian dish between all the other dishes uh, that's grow in the Middle East and was like influenced from city to country to other places. Makluba, it came from the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, Makluba, uh, it's, uh, I mean, the name of Makluba, it was it changed in the old city of Jerusalem. And there is a big history as far as Makluba and food uh, and uh, a Palestinian uh, dish. So Makluba is a truly Palestinian dish. And recently, uh, some uh, Israeli chefs, they were talking about makluba, how it was Israeli dish, and blah, blah. So, when you go back to the story of makluba, Salah al-Din Ayyubi, when he came and he defeated the Crusaders in Jerusalem, he's the one who changed the name of it from Bitin Janiyeh to makluba, and it was not intentionally, it just like happened. But like... Uh, when my friends, they were like contacting me, they're like, look, the Israelis are doing something about Makluba, so maybe you should just say the story. And I always do say the story of Makluba and like uh, different, uh, but you know, I never uh, like uh, have a piece about it or such. And it, it, through a work like this, you are encountering this appropriation. And uh, it is very important to understand the dynamic also, because Palestine had... Christian, Muslim, and Jews who live in this land. So you had Jews who were eating hummus and making hummus, and also makluba and other dish because they were living, you know, as uh, as you know, the Christian and the Muslims. 
So, uh, but at that time, they were living in Palestine. They had a Palestinian document. I mean, even Yehuda Elmer, she's half a Palestinian passport because all the Jews who came before, they came to Palestine. And this is, was a place to exist, you know, and even uh, uh, through the British mandate, uh, it was called Palestine. So in this land, there was no difference between Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim. All of them were living together harmoniously. Uh, and uh, there was even like some family. They would talk about the spirit as Jewish and Christian. They were like, you won't even know there was a difference. So all these people cooked all different type of dishes from the area. So you cannot say Jewish didn't cook uh, hummus or Palestinian food and such. But they were Palestinian at the time. Uh, and Israel, it's a country that was established uh, after 1948. And in the same time, it tried, to, as you said, to delete the Palestinian history. And, and it's never claiming like Palestine didn't exist. There was nothing called Palestine. But there's also something to mention that all these borders that we are seeing today, these borders were created by the British and by Europe. And all the flags that we carry today, which was also created by them. So after the Second World War, they installed these leaders, who most of them are dictators, uh, and they give them new borders and they give them a new flag. Before that period, this whole area of Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Palestine, uh, it was called Bilad Sham. There was like the area of Palestine, but there was like no specific borders. So this whole idea of borders, it's something in you to the Arab world and such. And that's what a lot of people don't know. And they don't uh, get to that uh, it, uh, side of the conversation. It's uh, because our Arab world was shaped by European colonizers and put it in a different way and installed leaders who are dictators to make sure they protect their uh, foreigner interest uh, with, with, the, with the European and with the colonizer. And I mean, this is one of the way why Sufism died, why uh, many things uh, changed, because these leaders, uh, their work uh, and what they did is basically oppress the people and oppress uh, the tools and take it from them, uh, the individual, and make them uh, dependent on, uh, on, on these governments and such. Like there is so much layers in in the subjects that uh, is uh, we have like to tackle it to be able to get the big picture. But uh, appropriating of the Palestinian uh, food, it is it is not something new. You know, it is uh, it is like when I was living in Arizona in the United States of America, I knew some people who are racist. They don't like Mexican, even though they are in Arizona, which is was a Mexican land. You know, and if you want to go even further. America is a stolen land from the Native American, you know? And they're like, oh, I hate Mexican, but I love tacos, you know? And just like uh, 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 many countries and many occupiers, they took certain food from other people and they claimed it. And I think uh, this mechanism, uh, it is uh, not an old mechanism, uh, but right now in, uh, in our era, we are facing it so much in, uh, in Palestine. And it is very fascinating and interesting to see certain mechanism and a certain system hating on the people but love their food. So how they can tackle with it, just call it Israeli food, you know. And this is where you still can eat it and you still can enjoy it. In the same time, you are uh, Israeli and you don't need to go to the other side. It's exactly the point. Like the full erasure, once you take it, you make it your own, you don't have to look the other side. I just want to elaborate on a very important uh, aspect as far as appropriation, because dishes, uh, it is the understanding uh, of our ancestor and the way how they utilize the land. So our ancestor, basically, they didn't have a grocery store. They can get ingredients from everywhere. They had their local things that grow in their land. So uh, cooking and uh, these, the cuisine, basically, it is the wisdom of our ancestor, how they took the green, uh, how they took the chickpeas, how they took the fava, how they took all these dishes and weaved it together uh, to make these dishes. It was basically the improvising of our ancestor to know how to work with the land. So it is a very important aspect because it show your connection with the, uh, with the farming. You show your connection with the local produce and what you did with it. 
and how this uh, to appropriate the food it can get them closer to be like oh we know the land we understand the land and we work with the land because this is the ingredient was given us so as a last question i want to ask you about uh, a reflection on jerusalem and uh, i was wondering in your view which are the three dishes that you can think of are, are best sorry. representing the city of Jerusalem. Ah, which are the three top dishes that they present Jerusalem? Yes, in your view. Okay, that's a good question. Well, no, 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 no. You would mean hot spot to choose, you know, top three. I would say, uh, I would say, uh, you know, uh, it's stuffed falafel or falafel, uh, or you know what, uh, falafel and hummus. Uh, it's uh, because in the old city of Jerusalem, falafel and hummus are way different than every part of uh, Palestine. It's truly where we believe that's the masters of hummus and falafel are. Uh, uh, so I will tackle these two as one. I would say the hummus and falafel. Other item is the kaik, the bread that we do over here that's made with a lot of sesame and it is very crunchy uh, from the outside and very foamy from the inside. It's the icon of the old city of Jerusalem and it is one of the most famous <clears throat> ingredient, or not ingredient, uh, most famous uh, bread in uh, the old city of Jerusalem. But you know, the third one, it will be tricky because there is different thing I can include. So I would say, ah, this is a bit more going back in time. It's like a freaky soup, for example. A freaky soup, uh, a freaky, it's a grain coming from wheat. It's uh, a green roasted wheat, basically, that uh, we dry and then we make a soup out of it. And uh, this soup is very simple. It's made out of onion. Uh, and uh, some mini meatballs uh, uh, of uh, ground beef, but this uh, this dish it's come and is still served by the soup kitchen, which is the Asian soup kitchen, what we call it Kiye, uh, which is a, a soup kitchen was created by the Ottoman Empire. So during the Ottoman Empire time, they created the soup kitchen where designed. Or it is basically a community kitchen designed to give food for the people who are less fortunate. And uh, their main, uh, they serve different kind of food, but the freaky soup, it's like one of the tastes of the old city of Jerusalem in particular, uh, especially in uh, in my father's time, let's say. And uh, many people still remember that taste. But, you know, fast forward today, it's less known or like between the Palestinian of course it's very known but like uh, it's not a lot of people go to the tikiya let's say uh, to eat it like how they used to so I would say the new item for nowadays is uh, which basically uh, something between a pizza and a quiche it's made out of a dough similar to pita bread uh, it's have some eggs they put some sausage uh, meat in it uh, uh, and a cheese or they make it vegetarian when they put the zata leaf uh, and uh, other vegetable and this item is a true item of the old city of Jerusalem because this is our social club where we hang out in the old city of Jerusalem when we were kids we will go to the bakery who is preparing to make the cake and the bread in between all that time of mixing and rising the bread and such he will make this circle little uh, mini pizza let's say and uh, they are something truly of the old city of Jerusalem and they were mentioned recently in New York Times actually uh, they were like uh, uh, they even mentioned one of the places who is mentioned it and it's also an item on my Twitter this was uh, Izeldin Abdulaziz Bukhari chef and founder of Sacred Cuisine Izeldin thank you so much my pleasure, truly an honor. Thank you for this opportunity, Roberto. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged.
Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.